understanding your attention competitors. Who else is your audience reading right now or listening to or watching? What does all that content kind of have in common? What is the tone? What is the style? What are they talking about? How are they talking about it? And start to find patterns and then decide how you can break those patterns and do something different. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Confessions of a B2B Marketer podcast. Today, we're joined by one of the OGs in B2B content. His name is Devin Reed. And Devin was the first official content person at Gong, has since moved to Clary, and has also done a load of stuff on the side. His ability to define clearly what you need to do in order to make your B2B content actually work is unparalleled. And that's what I really got out of this recording. So let's jump into that right now. After I've quickly explained who's sponsoring this episode, the sponsor is Fame. Fame is the company that produces this show. So if you like this show, if you like what we do, if you like the guests, if you like the recording, if you like the hosting, then maybe Fame can help you and your B2B business with your own podcast. Fame, basically find the guests, produce the assets, and take responsibility for promoting your show. So if you are interested in that, go to fame.so, click on get a proposal. Make sure you say confessions of a B2B marketer podcast where we say, how do people find out about us? And we'll jump on a call. Maybe I'll also be on that call as well. So let's jump into this discussion with Devin. Devin, welcome to the show. What's going on? Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. So I spent the evening yesterday listening to your episode with Dave Gerhart on the X of Five show. Anybody that's listening, I highly recommend going check that out. It's an awesome interview. Thank you. And so I'll probably give a quick intro. Devin is like OG in the world of content for B2B in my eyes. Thank you. So Gong and now Clary. And so I thought the best way to use this time, at least initially, was to dig into the Gong content process. So you did talk about it with Dave, but I think we can maybe go into more detail. Sure. And then kind of also learn about how we're doing that Clary without giving away too many secrets. But then also I want to dig into your personal branding stuff, like the businesses that you're building on the side. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Amazing. So let's start with Gong. And there's some really interesting insights about how you guys were able to create content that people really liked. And so if you're happy to just share that process of how you went from having no content plan to actually creating awesome content. Yeah, we'll piece it out because it's a big story. I don't want to bore people. I could probably take a couple hours going through the whole process over a couple of years. But I'll start by saying I think one of the differentiators was I had no marketing background from a classical sense, right? I'd never been on a marketing team. I didn't know what really normal looked like except for being a consumer of B2B content. And so as we were creating things, my first thought was we have to be different and we have to be so high quality that if we get so lucky that someone reads our social posts, listens to a podcast, reads an article, it has to be so good that it's impossible not to follow us. It's impossible not to look for the subscribe button and want more of that. And that was core into our DNA from the beginning when it was just myself on the team. And then as we scaled, we really instilled that. And everybody that I hired understood that that was the goal. And by year one, two, when we're really starting to scale, people, you know, marketers knew who we were. They saw the content and they wanted to be a part of it. So I, I got lucky that it kind of attracted the right people after we kind of caught some momentum. But in terms of kind of the content itself, what we wanted to do was to provide the most valuable sales content on the planet. The goal for our, the, our LinkedIn mission was to create the most engaging sales content on the effing planet. I don't know if I can curse on the show, so I'll, I'll bleep myself the best I can. 
And so that's what we did. And, we, and most engaging and most valuable kind of depending on the channel there. But those were the things we were looking to do. And at the time, I think marketers always wanted to do that. But we're kind of stuck in that dry B2B, highly formal, highly educational kind of space. And I think Gong was one of the first to really break through that. Obviously, HubSpot, you always got to tip your hat to HubSpot. But in terms of the style and the kind of way that we went about it, I think we kind of broke the mold on that one. For sure. Going back to the point of creating the most valuable content, one thing I found interesting about how you did this at Gong was in the last five, 10 years, I've seen that some people equate value with size or volume. And I personally have been creating blog posts that are like 40,000 words. Do you know what I mean? But you have been saying to leave people wanting more. Could you share how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, yeah. I've noticed that just a lot of marketing is, is just exhaustive. Like, does an ebook have to be 60 slides? Does a blog have to be 3,000 words? I don't think so. I think you can get a lot of it done in a lot shorter. And so when I think about leaving people wanting more, I almost think of it as like food. Like maybe I'm the restaurant. I'm going to try a new analogy here. But if you're stuffed, you might not want to come back. Is on the point of wanting, leaving them wanting more was... I want them to consume that piece of content, but enjoy it so much that they want maybe to go click another article or keep scrolling versus be so exhaustive. That's kind of like, okay, I've had my fill, right? I'm kind of good here. And so when we were creating our thought leadership blogs, the goal was less than a thousand words. But we wrote them like every headline had to be skimmable. I assumed most people were going to spend about 15 to 30 seconds on our blog, despite how much time we put into it. And so we really optimized it to make it easy to consume and that it wasn't a high barrier in terms of like how much energy does it take? Do I have to spend 15 minutes to read a blog that Devin wrote? No, I can spend a minute and get a lot of impact. So it's more about being potent with the value per word, if you will, and focusing less on being the most exhaustive because I don't think that's really where people's attention span is going right now. And I think it's kind of like, if you look at the landscape, what everyone's doing, they're like really long form, <laughs> really long form SEO blogs that are really bland or like really long form kind of like dry, really educational stuff. It feels like work as you read through it. And I don't want to have that experience. And the other thing that I think worked really well for you guys was that you were able to increase the value of the content through the data you got from the platform. But then that also acts as a subtle advert for Gong, right? Yeah. And so do you think this is something that, let's say there's a smaller B2B company, maybe they don't have the volume and the quality of data that you had, how would you recommend them going about that? Still finding some kind of insights and building their content around that? So the data is the easiest one because the data is naturally credible, right? We look at a data point statistic and we say that that's real, that's true. You know, gives us something to hang our hat on. If you don't have... Well, first I would say go above and beyond just trying to get some data from your own platform because that's proprietary data. No one can come copy it. And what happens is people cite you and then you get a lot of backlinks. It starts to spread in that way. I remember there's the Salesforce, I don't know the exact stats, maybe they didn't do that good of a job with some Salesforce stat that like 65% of a seller's time is not spent actually selling. I don't know if you caught that one. It came out like 5, 10 years ago and it still gets mentioned all the time. My goal was to create stuff like that. I want my stats to be used in other people's marketing and pitch decks or whatever because they're citing us. So really try to do that. Really put in the effort, explain to your CEO why the resources are worth it. That's a very defendable content strategy once you have that. If you don't, then what you can do is rely on reframes. And so what a reframe is, is just what's the common consensus and how can you flip it on its head and start to educate the world a different point of view. So here's an example. We have Clary Labs. So we have some data at Clary. It's not as much as we had at Gong. But there's this really good one where we're writing a blog on slipped deals. Everyone kind of knows what slipped deals are. The deals that move from one quarter to another and they don't close on time. 
But what was really interesting was one of our VPs of sales, Anthony Cesario, he said, most of the blame for missing your quarter goes to lost deals, but really it's because of your slip to deals. That right there might not have as much pop as a big data point, but that's still really interesting because you're kind of like, huh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Tell me more. And so you can use that, which we did, to dovetail into more about that topic, which positioned us as a thought leader in that category in that space. We need to get data or we need to get some kind of unconventional opinion. And if we have those, our content should do better. Final point on this. The other thing I'm aware of is that you guys, I think for most of the time at Gong, we're doing just one of these blog posts per month. So you could, I assume, focus all the effort into making it great. And then you were then, for the rest of the month, I assume, taking bits from that piece of content and then distributing with through zero click emails, et cetera. Could you share more about that process? Yeah, yeah. So what we were doing was, yeah, about monthly, maybe every six weeks even, because it was sometimes really time intensive to get the data and make the report correct and the story and all that. But it was also a fairly decent sized campaign where we're also doing all the social activations around it and to your point, splicing it up. But what we did with each blog, almost every single one had a new piece of premium content or an upgrade asset, as I would call it, which was, hey, here's the data in the blog. By the way, here's this cheat sheet, this template. You can download it, give us your email address. And so we started to collect and build our email list that way. But what happened is that would be the first time we would launch that asset was as a part of that blog. And that would start to tell us what the appetite for that piece of content was kind of a tester. And so in between posting the new blogs, we would just distribute those cheat sheets and those tip sheets again across social and email. And so what happens after a few months, you now have five, six, seven of these things. And you can just have this revolving door of constantly redistributing existing content that people are liking. And so it kind of had that snowball, that compounding effect as we did it. And then when we had a really good blog, we would turn the blog into a webinar and we would splice it up. So if you have three cheat sheets that are similar in topic, you can put that into an ebook, repackage that and put it on paid, right? So it's really just like, again, if you invest in that high quality upfront, you have a lot of stuff you can play, remix and, and play with. And so that's how we got away with not doing a ton of volume, but it probably felt like a lot of volume just by the way that we would distribute that content over and over again. Yeah, I feel like I'm guilty of this and maybe other B2B marketers listening is... Instead of just getting that one awesome piece of content every month or every six weeks, we're doing four bits of average content every month. Yep. And it's just not having the same impact. It's not. And you know, I've done it too, where you have to go look at the data, right? And go, hey, CMO, CEO, we can keep doing 10 blogs a month. Here's the web traffic. Or we could do one blog or two of them a month and we would get more traffic so, for, so we get higher ROI. But we would also would get more notoriety and mindshare in our category because we are actually making noise. People are having a conversation around our content and breaking through the noise versus just creating a bunch of stuff that's adding to it and not really helping our business move forward. Yeah, this is the key. Let's now talk about your approach to social channels because you've been quoted previously as saying, focus on one. I think it was LinkedIn for the, at least the initial part of the gong process. What did you do on LinkedIn? Why did you choose that first? So I was a sales rep before I was in marketing. And so when I was at Gong, I was a rep at Gong and I moved across the office. It was like funny. I had like my cardboard box and everything. But instead of leaving for, for good, I just walked 20 feet to the left and set up at a new pod. But so I knew that if I want to build where my audience is today, where do they go when they open their laptop? What are the tabs and apps that they're opening? And as a salesperson, it's email, like Gmail, Outlook, Salesforce, and LinkedIn. I can build on email because I can build an email list. I can reach you there. I can meet you at LinkedIn on the feed. 
can't build in Salesforce. So I'm going to let that one go. So if I can win two out of the three places that you're on all day long, that's just increases my odds of being seen. And so that's where I focused. It just so happened also that that's what I was better at, luckily, was LinkedIn. I was never really big into Twitter. And instead of trying to expand that and go, okay, let's scale to Twitter and maybe TikTok when it came out, we just dominated on LinkedIn and just enjoyed that and just like really became, which I think is important and overlooked, we're channel experts. We knew the algorithm. We understood the trends. We really were in that channel. I didn't feel comfortable going over to Twitter kind of half-assing it and expecting, oh, the stuff, yeah, we'll, we'll shorten it for Twitter and we'll change a little bit. But no, you have to be there consuming content, interacting with people, responding to comments, and we just weren't ready to do that. So yeah, we just stayed with LinkedIn. And in terms of the actual stuff that you're posting together as engagement, I assume it's just the high-quality stuff from that blog post throughout the month in order, like, natively in the platform. And that worked. Yeah, that was a big part of it. I mean, we scaled up from, I don't know, I think when I was just me, we were doing one post a day. And then by the time I left with a team of seven, there's three posts a day and some on the weekends. And so a lot of that was repurposed from the blog. But then we also had podcasts that we could cut up and replay, webinar videos. And so as your content scales up in the production, you can obviously, as we mentioned, have more to repurpose. And so we just had different buckets of content. Because once you get to what Gong size was by the time I left, I think 1,000, 1,200 employees, then you also have HR and they want you to come, hey, can you put a job posting on? Or hey, someone in left field's like, hey, I was on this podcast, can you post? So you have to find that wiggle room of having your core content strategy but then also including posts that are important for corporate, but not necessarily going to build your audience. And so we did that. But the one thing I was relentless on was every single day, we have to post one thing for our sales audience. That's so high quality, it's impossible not to follow. I said it over and over again. So I'm like, I don't care if we have to post about the engineering jobs at 8 in the morning. At 11, I want something for the salespeople. And that was something we just stayed true to. Were you the first content marketing employee at Gong? I was by title, yes, but technically Chris Orlob was before me. So he was like employee five or something. I don't know. He was really, really early on. He was senior director of product marketing, but he did a lot of content marketing as well. And so he stood up Gong Labs, the research series for about a year, year and a half with our CEO. He was actually making his first hire. So it was like an IC role. And I applied and got the job. And then as I was onboarding, he was starting to onboard. He said, actually, I decided I'm going to go back into sales. So the sales guy became marketer, marketer became sales guy. And then I just became the de facto one-man team. I kind of took over Chris's job from the content standpoint. And then I started to build out the team. The role you applied for was the sales role. Yeah, yeah. I was the second sales rep at Gong in 2017 when there was like 12 employees in America. Yeah. So it's like two, what seems to be, with hindsight, incredible decisions there. A, moving into the content team of something that was going to blow up in content now. Obviously, it's like cause and effect, right? So obviously, you helped that, but it was a great move anyway. And then B, choosing Gong to work for. Yeah. Because at that time, they obviously had something amazing. And now it's like just been incredible. And if you look at your career after Gong as well with Clary and the other work you're doing on the side, everything is around this B2B and content, which is... So that move was just like, do you ever look back and be like, wow, I made a great decision? (laughs) I don't let myself think that because I think that's like the slippery slope of thinking you're smarter than you are. I admit to a lot of luck. I am very intentional. People that know me say I'm extremely intentional with my decisions, but that doesn't mean I'm right all the time. And I, what, 2016, I was looking for jobs and I'm like, you know what? This next job's going to lead me to head of content at a couple billion dollar companies. Like, no way. No, I'm not going to pretend that. But what's funny was I was at Eventbrite before Gong as a sales rep and knew I was going to leave. And the way I found Gong was actually a Gong Labs article from Chris. And so I'm sitting at my desk 
And my director comes up and shares this article. And she says, hey, why don't you read this and share it back with the team? I'm like, all right, cool. I'm reading it and I'm blown away. I'm like, this is actually extremely interesting. It's well-written. There's data. I've never seen data on sales tips before. So I go two hours later to a blind recruiting call. The ones where they won't tell you, but you have to, you know, so I'm like, all right, whatever. Never take these things. I never say yes. And she starts describing, hey, it's a Series A company. They're out of San Francisco, but also out of Israel. They're doing call recording and some really cool stuff with data. I said, are you talking about Gong by chance? She's like, yeah, I am. And I was like, I think the stars are aligning. This is my path. And so I ended up interviewing and getting the job there. But at the time, it was extremely risky. Eventbrite was like six months away from going public. I was like in cruise control, hitting quota. Like I'd figured it out there. And here I was betting on this 40-person Israeli company that records sales calls. And it was just like, yeah, the look on your face, it could have gone bad. Right there, it could have been a terrible call. And, and no knock on other companies. There's other companies in that space that I, I could have joined and it wouldn't have been as successful. Yeah, sometimes when those weird things happen, you just have to roll with it. Because that was two different things. Yeah. Again, I think as I take the thing and help me get to the next real thing that I want to do, and that's helped kind of compound and get to where I am today. Makes total sense. I want to get to the personal branding stuff in a second, but just a couple more points on content. Final one on content at Gong. Other thing that you said in the Dave interview that I thought was really interesting is that Slack actually turned out to be one of the most effective distribution channels. And so my question to you is, that obviously happens because people think it's so good they share in Slack. And so if the only tip for the audience there, just make the content better. (laughs) I think that's the trap. The trap is make it better. The truth is make it different. It has to be different. Now, high quality and better are two different things. I don't know if you're going to go make a new peanut butter company. I wouldn't go look at Jif. That's the big one in the States or Skippy too. But if you eat Skippy, I don't trust you. Just kidding. But I wouldn't say, hey, I'm going to go make a slightly better Skippy or a slightly better Jif peanut butter. You got to do something different. And it's actually funny. I don't know why that's on my brain. But there was this company that came out with these crazy flavors. One, they made it exclusive. Two, they made these weird bespoke flavors and they're selling out like crazy and they're starting to go across the country, right? They took a totally different path on peanut butter. You have to take a totally different path with your content. So that's why things I talk about are like understanding your attention competitors. Who else is your audience reading right now or listening to or watching? What does all that content kind of have in common? What is the tone? What is the style? What are they talking about? How are they talking about it? And start to find patterns and then decide how you can break those patterns and do something different. So Gong, everyone in the sales, if you were talking about sales skills and such, You're like the old guard from these really expensive sales training companies and they never really shared what they were doing, right? So that's one trend. Like people weren't really sharing the real secrets or you were a sales rep speaking strictly from your own experience. But if you're, I don't know, an insurance saleswoman over in Delaware, your advice might be right to you, but it's not probably going to apply to me too much over in SaaS sales in San Francisco. So it doesn't really have as much authority or credibility. And so what we decided, which Chris, credit to Chris and me, was let's use data. Let's cut through the noise, cut through the BS of what salespeople have been taught or what they think they know, and let's use data as an objective truth. And then we wrote stories around that. So we didn't just go pure informational. We wrote really good first-person stories. And like I said, followed it up with actionable content where most people weren't... One, no one had data. Or if they did, they were like kind of data dumping. It wasn't really as engaging. And then a lot of people simply weren't sharing such high impact actual like, okay, here's what to do. Here's specifically word for word what to say. Again, most people were guarding that or making you pay for it. It actually reminds me of how Bloomberg, they used to just make the terminals and then give data to financial services companies. And then I think it was like 10 years in, they were like, why don't we produce a media company as well 
and then use our data in that content in order to make it more valuable than all the other media competitors. Yeah. Kind of what you did at Gong, right? Yeah, exactly. And I bet you to that point too is in the market, you are more credible. People don't want to churn and leave because you are the leader in this space. They look to you for answers, even if it's not related to your product. And that's what pulls people in and keeps them there from a customer standpoint. And so, yeah, it has more value than just like how much pipeline are we generating and sourcing and all that stuff like that. It's No, it's actually having a bigger market impact. And we are leading the conversation because you have mind share at that point. Makes total sense. So fast forward to Clary then. Is the playbook the same? Are we doing anything different? No, it's pretty different, I would say. So there's a lot of things that are alike, but I would say the way we're going about it is really different. So Gong and Clary both doing category plays, selling to a fairly similar audience, sales pros, revenue professionals, go-to-market pros, whatever you want to kind of call it. But the way that Gong and Clary, at least from a content standpoint, are growing their category and the way they're dominating is very different. So Gong was like, hey, as a business, our strategy is... Or kind of our marketing strategy is to say, hey, don't trust opinions, trust data, right? Revenue intelligence. Figure out what's really going on and use that to make decisions. So the content just embodied that. It was, okay, don't use opinions in our content. We'll use data and we'll just do that over and over again. And we just embodied that belief, if you will. Clary is different where we're using languaging. So I don't know if anyone's familiar with category design or Chris Lockhead. He's one of the advisors. And so him and Andy and Kyle, before I got there, came up with a lot of languaging. So they've named the problem. So revenue leak is this problem hiding in plain sight. We named it that. We're defining it. We're talking about it. The opposite of that, once you solve it, is revenue precision. We're talking about it, defining that. And then, of course, as people start to get educated on it, they go, oh, wait, I have revenue leak. Oh, wait, this can be solved. I bet Clary can do it. And so we're seeing inbound and other really good signals start to spike because people are starting to get the message and viewing us as the best solution. So again, there's no right or wrong way to go dominate a category. Both are working or have, you know, one's worked in the past because I obviously not there anymore. But there's multiple ways you can get it done. And so also when you start to get more to the tactical level of Clary, you know, we launched a microsite for the category called runrevenue.pro. Everything is ungated with an optional subscribe if you want to get a newsletter from us. So we're taking a little bit more of kind of like a guess, traditional media play where like less gated stuff. And so we're not getting as many MQ, I'm air quoting MQLs from gated content that you would have gone, but we're getting more inbound. We're kind of trusting the process. Like, hey, if we put out the right content, we distribute it, we'll get the lagging indicator of inbound in the long run. And naming the concept revenue leak, I think is absolutely genius because the word leak has such a negative connotation. And then business leaders or sales leaders thinking how revenue is just like leaking out of their business is such a, a visceral concept. To clarify though, the category you guys sit within is revenue intelligence. And then you've named these concepts within that. Is that correct? So there's the battle in sales or revenue tech right now, which I think there's like three categories. Outreach has their own category. Gong is revenue intelligence. Clary actually has their own category, which is revenue collaboration and governance. So it's a little bit more on the enterprise level, RevCG for short. But we're all going kind of for the revenue platform play. That's where the head of the battle is coming into. So yeah, different category name, different category way, I guess you could say. So yeah. Those, the revenue leak and revenue precision are more like concepts within the category. Right. Cool, yeah. yeah. Those are things that Chris came up with. Well, Chris and team, I don't want to take credit. I wasn't here. I, <laughs> I got the joy of taking that and going to market. But Chris is an absolute genius coming up with that because yeah, it's so clear. And it's funny when I was at Gong, I saw them launch their category in a deck with this concept and it caught my eye. And actually it kind of ended up starting a conversation with Kyle over at Clary because it really it was really, really well done. For sure. Yeah. This is something that I haven't really seen that much is companies creating and naming concepts as opposed to just categories. 
So that's super interesting learning. Let's jump over then. So at what point did you first start kind of, I assume alongside your role at Gong, also cultivating your own audience? Yeah, I noticed that Mark Roberge, I don't know if you know Mark Roberge from HubSpot. He was the CR at HubSpot from zero to 100 million in AR or something like that. And I remember like, while I gong, I'm like, this guy's like famous. He's like a sales leader, right? He's just got a guy with the job, but he's like famous. How is he so well known? Obviously, I was naive. If you know Mark Roberge, you know how silly that thought is because he does obviously much more than that now. But I was trying to figure it out. And everyone I would ask about this guy, you know, I see him at events and podcasts, was that was starting to take off. And they're like, oh, he's the guy from, he's the HubSpot CRO. He's the guy who built HubSpot, basically. And obviously, there's many other people involved. And so I was like, huh. He used it as a springboard to build an audience and a reputation. And that has led to him now being at stage two capital, which I'm a part of. And so I saw that and went, I wonder how I can do that. Like I'm at Gong. Gong's doing pretty well, starting to take off. How do I use kind of my notoriety and my, the success we've had here and start to kind of build my own audience as well? And so that's when one, I mean, my LinkedIn had been growing since I joined the marketing department because I was publishing Gong Labs. So I was obviously getting a lot of views that way. But then I started to think, hey, I'm, I'm not only going to talk about sales forever. I've been in marketing for a couple of years. I think I have a lot to share. And so that's when I started launching the newsletter, the content strategy reader, when I kind of started doing more podcasts like this, talking about marketing as people just wanted to talk to me about it. And so I just realized that the most valuable thing to Gong's strategy was their audience. The owned audience on email and it was the air quoting rented audience on LinkedIn. So how do I build that for myself? And then over the last couple years, just been able to kind of monetize that in different ways while still enjoying the process of just helping other content creators, entrepreneurs, revenue pros use content to grow their business and their income. So we can call it one of your intentional decisions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very intentional. I definitely didn't accidentally start that process. And has there ever been any conflict? Because obviously now you have to manage this high profile content role like leading content at Clary, but then also manage all this other stuff on the side. Do you just, are you just like super productive, keep it separate? Has there only been any issues? No issues. When I started at Clary, Kyle and I had a very, you know, I had a very direct conversation because I wanted to get it. One, there's nothing to hide. So I didn't want to make it feel like there was. And then two was just have it up front. Like, hey, I have the reader. It's extremely important to me. I'm not going to give it up. And here's the realistic amount of time that I spend. It's never eight to five. It's not during my work hours, to which we both laugh that no B2B leadership job is just nine to five. And it's like, hey, what I do on nights and weekends is up to me. If I wanted to go build muscle cars, you wouldn't care about it. So if the fact that I like to go do more digital content, write and monetize from it shouldn't really change anything. If anything, it makes me better at my job. So totally cool with it. No problem there. And there's no conflict because there's not a... The audiences are different, right? I'm not selling SaaS software to CROs. I'm just talking to other, like I said, other marketers and creators in my own lane. Yeah, so I would say, actually, yeah, definitely making, well, probably making you better at your role because even doing this, you're probably learning and you learn to create content, right? Yeah. But then at the same time, you also have a clarity on your LinkedIn profile. Your LinkedIn profile has like X amount of hits a day. And you're not, maybe you're not talking about revenue, but clarity is definitely benefiting from your personal brand. 100%, 100%. I mean, despite the success I had at Gong, I have to imagine my reputation itself in the digital brand online is a big part of why Clary wanted to hire me. And I've heard other stories, I'm sure you have too. People get better jobs, more money because they're viewed as a more valuable asset to their company. And so, yeah, to your point, the fact that I can help, I can drive registration to our events. I can get awareness out there on my LinkedIn profile. It's not forced of me, but obviously I want to because that is the double dip. I get to help my day job with my personal brand. 
So yeah, it's very clear. And it also helps that Kyle, my CMO, is at like 100,000 followers and he writes on LinkedIn every single day. So it's like he sees it. And now Andy, our CEO, is active on LinkedIn. So luckily, it's, it's going in that direction versus Devin's the black sheep weird guy who's like constantly on LinkedIn talking about random marketing stuff. How involved were you in the CEO's recent posting? Because I know he's had some pretty banging posts. Yeah, it all comes down to Andy. I mean, it's Andy's brain and his desire. We were just in a strategy session one time and he had kind of joked like elbowing us, like tired of seeing you and Kyle over, over LinkedIn. Like, how do I get in on that? How can I get involved? So we were kind of talking about strategy. How do we showcase his expertise, right? And elevate him as a thought leader. How do we get Clary's name out there? Like, what are things we can do to just continue to amplify our messaging and get it out there? And I'm like, well, I'm pretty good at LinkedIn. If you want to explore LinkedIn, Andy. And so we just sat down over a few slides and broke down. What are we really trying to do? How are we going to measure success? And what are the content pillars that you want to write about? Because it has to umbrella up to something. I don't want you just writing anything and everything about how you walked your dog one day, you went to painting class the next day, and you're in a board meeting the next. That's not really cohesive. And so back to kind of our being the revenue platform, he's like, I want to be synonymous with revenue. That's what I want. I want to connect with other CEOs, CROs. I love talking to them, learning about their problems. And then obviously, there's you know ability to sell to them potentially. But that's his passion is that, that first part. And so I said, cool, let's sit down and come up with some ideas and what you could talk about and why. And then just kind of helping him with getting started. Just like anybody else, he was a little nervous to start putting his thoughts and ideas out there. And so helped him brush up his LinkedIn profile, helped him start publishing. And he also has a bi-weekly newsletter on LinkedIn, Rise Up as well, that he's really passionate about. So it's been fun to see him go from a couple posts here and there to like basically every single day newsletter. He's on podcasts. It's been really cool to see. Right. Work. It reminds me. So I had Todd Kyle, who I'm sure you're aware of, on recently, and he was talking about how his role at Lavender is basically creator manager, like empowering the other creators on the team. So that's kind of what you did with the CEO, right? Yeah, exactly. And we do. We're hopefully doing it with other execs. We kind of same thing, compounding and learning from Andy's playbook and applying it to other executives. And then we're also launching the Clary Advocacy next week, which is just free LinkedIn training for anyone who wants to learn how to build their brand, use the platform, start writing with the goal of hopefully sparking more confidence and abilities so people can start creating on LinkedIn, not even just to benefit Clary, just for the fact like, hey, build your brand, become more valuable and have fun doing it. Love that. What I want to finish on, and I think this is most valuable for the audience, you clearly have really distilled, concise thoughts on making effective B3 content. So if somebody is listening and they're about to embark on a new content type or campaign, what are the three things that they need to absolutely nail? This is perfect. One, I wrote about it this week. And two, I'm going to write about it longer tomorrow in my newsletter. It's coming out tomorrow. So it's funny. I was walking my dog thinking about this exact thing. So hopefully I can be concise as I have been so far. So the first thing, and I have been coaching my team on this a lot, is what is the big promise that we're making with this campaign or this piece of content? We'll use content if that's okay. Campaigns are just bigger versions of this. So someone was writing a blog, eight strategies to do something. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But let's just say navigating the rest of 2023, right? Eight strategies for navigating the rest of 2023. If someone clicks that, what is the promise that you're going to pay off once they click? Now, you want to do it as quickly as possible. But at the end of the day, you're not giving them eight legit strategies to navigate the rest of 2023. You failed that promise. But I think a lot of times people don't even have what that big promise is in their head. They kind of start with like a keyword or some topic. But like really dig into it and say, what is the opposite side of this? What is the big promise? What's the thing that they're going to get? And then over-deliver. This kind of goes into number two. It's like, what is your big promise? Number two is over-deliver on that promise, especially if it's a gated piece of content. I think a lot of times 
they just like, kind of just put enough content to say we did what we say we do, but it's not really like, holy, this is amazing content. That's what you want. You want people to get done reading it and go, I would have paid for this. This is so great. This is amazing. Or to your point earlier, I got to slack this. I got to share this with somebody because it's so good. So I'd say over deliver into kind of ways you can do that. Go back to that data insight or reframe. And the way I tell my team is there has to be one thing. I call it power line sometimes because it gives the whole article power is what is like one big idea, one reframe, one thing that's going to stick out to them for the rest of their day because you made them think differently. That's number two, give them a new way to think. I would say the third thing is make it immediately actionable. Whether it's in the asset, as I was talking about with blogs, if it's an upgrade asset, if you're going to give someone a new way to think, maybe some prescriptive advice, make it extremely actionable. So make it like a template. Maybe, hey, I just told you how to fix your personal budgeting. Here's a template you can use right now in Excel and help you track everything from your mortgage to your dog food, right? That's extremely helpful. You just gave them the next step. And that barrier from taking information to using information is what stops a lot of people from actually using content or like bettering themselves, right? It's like that process. So how can you lower that barrier by making it more actionable and easily actionable? Those are three things. Make a big promise, give them a new way to think, and making it immediately actionable. Got it. And the other key points I'm taking away for the audience is the whole like you can name concepts within your category as well. And then also try and get some data or if not an unconventional opinion into the content. Final question, actually, you know how I see and probably you do as well, like B2B marketing is shifting like now LinkedIn and content is probably more important than maybe events were 10 years ago. Do you think in the future this lines people like you up that have the content and social background to becoming the next leading CMOs. Previously, like CMOs, maybe they need to be like good at partnerships or good at events. Now future CMOs are going to need to be good at online content and social. What do you think about that? Man, it's a trap question because if I say yes, I'm just so self-serving. And if I say no, then I sound like a fraud for everything I just said. Yeah, you don't have to answer. I have actually thought about this, Tom. And it wasn't just me. It was Udi at, at Gong who kind of shared this with me. And he didn't say it quite as like on the nose of what we were just talking about. But it was more of kind of the lane of the creative CMO who understand brand, who understand content. I think events actually are still part of it. Maybe they're digital more now than they used to be. But his, and obviously this was his Udi's strength, is like, how do you create a cohesive brand that people really feel that they're a part of? Content was a big way that we did that. But we also did it with category. Not many people do it with category. And so I think events and then we're SEO, whatever you add into that, I think that kind of concept is super important. I mean, I think it's obvious if you're not winning in the digital world right now, or at least, at least thinking about it, you're just setting yourself up to be left behind. So that's my really long way of saying yes. <laughs> I, think, I think you're completely right. But I think I get almost blessed because I'm like, I don't even know that I ever want to be CMO, to be honest. I love being in the trenches and doing the work. And I know how much stress can be on a CMO's life. So I don't know if it's for me, man. But yeah, I got to say, you can win with content, obviously. That's one, one way you can do it. And on that note, now everybody listening has to go to thereader.co because we're going to get much more detail, I believe, on the three steps of content, right? Yeah, yeah. Go there. Well, that, are you talking about the newsletter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The newsletter is on. You can subscribe on there. That's the homepage. Yeah, I love writing this newsletter. It's really fun to... I love the responses I get, especially like people with follow-up questions. But yeah, every week I write it on every Saturday morning. Less than five minutes to read. It's always got something, back to what I just said, some sort of strategy to make you think differently and something you can put into practice immediately. So if that interests you, go ahead and sign sign on up. It's free and you can leave at any time. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe I wouldn't subscribe now. So anybody listening, the link directly to the sign up will be in the show notes. 
currently 8,907 subscribers, so you're in good company. Devin, that was an absolute masterclass on B2B content and social. Very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll link to the newsletter. If there anything else we should link to, obviously we can link to Clary. We'll link to Gong, anything else we've mentioned. Yeah, I've got a new digital playbook. If you want to throw it in there, it's really optional. Depending on when it comes out, Tom, it can either be the pre-sale link, which is just to sign up for early access and a discount, or you can purchase it depending on when it comes out. But yeah, I'm really excited about it. It is like I've set it up as like a 30-day reader. And the goal is you get a lesson every single day for 30 days. And the goal is to help you grow your audience and monetize your audience and have more inbound. So it's a really fun read. There's 10 chapters. Excuse me, there's 30, like I said, three parts. So first is like content marketing. Next is LinkedIn. Next is email. So everything we just talked about, if you want to go like all the way in the weeds, learn like how to write these posts, how to grow your email, go ahead and check it out. It's a really cool playbook. I'm excited about it. This will also be linked below. Devin, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. And there we go, guys. What do we think? Devin absolutely killed it. Really clear strategies to making B2B content that actually works. And obviously, Devin knows what he's talking about because he did it for Gong and is currently doing it for Parry and is currently doing it for all his personal stuff. So definitely go and follow Devin on LinkedIn because you're going to get that kind of content goodness in your feed most days. So thank you for Devin for coming on. Again, shout out to our sponsor, Fame, fame.so. If you are interested in potentially having your own branded B2B podcast for your B2B business. And of course, thank you so much for listening.